Swami Nikhilanand is a disciple of Jagat Guru Shri Kripaluji Maharaj. He resides at Radha Madhav Dham in Austin, Texas, which is the U.S. ashram of Jagat Guru Kripalu Parishad. He travels America, preaching the philosophy of Sanatan Dharma as taught by Shri Kripaluji Maharaj. In this series of lectures, Swami Nikhilanand explains the three paths to God, Karm, Gyan and Bhakti. He reveals the scriptural teachings behind each path and tells which path is the best one to follow. So far in this series, I've been talking to you about the three paths to God. And I told you that according to our scriptures, there are three paths, Karma, Gyan and Bhakti. So we talked about the path of Karma and understood that karma is of four types karma, vikarma, karma yoga, karma sannyas. Karma and vikarma are both done with the attachment of the mind in the world. Karma means doing good karma, vikarma means doing bad karma, either one results in worldly bondage. Karma yoga is done with the attachment of the mind in God, as is karma sannyas. Karma yoga means doing good karma physically, as the one doing karma does, but without the attachment of the mind in the world, instead having the mind attached in God. And karma sannyas means having the mind attached in God, but not being involved in worldly activities, both of those result in God-realization. But the reason they result in God-realization is because of the attachment of the mind in God, which is called bhakti. So, bhakti means having your mind attached in God. And if you do good karma physically with your mind attached in God, so you did karma plus bhakti, that becomes karma yoga and that can take you to God-realization. But karma on its own can only result in a better destiny in your next life or possibly going to swarg, but even swarg is within the material realm where there is no perfect happiness and as long as you are under maya, you will have some kind of suffering and you won't find perfect happiness. So karma on its own cannot take us beyond maya, but karma plus bhakti can. And that is called karma yoga or just bhakti, that's karma sannyas. Either one leads to God-realization. There's one more thing that people wonder about the path of karma, because we spoke of prayaschit karma that we've done many bad actions in our past lives. And prayaschit karma is described in the Vedas that if you perform that kind of karma, then it frees you from the effect of those bad actions. It washes away the effect of those actions. So people may wonder that if I'm doing bhakti and not practicing all this Vedic karma, such as prayaschit karma, so, how will I wash away the effects of my past sins? You see, bhakti is very powerful compared to karma when it comes to washing away sins. To wash away the effect of a sin by practicing prayaschit karma, it's a very long process. For each and every sin, you have to know what sin you did. And then according to Ved, you see, okay, so for this sin, I have to do this kind of austerities or this kind of charity or this kind of jup in order to counteract the effect of that wrong action. And it takes, you know, it takes just a moment or a minute to perform a bad action. But it may take days to counteract the effect of that bad action through prayaschit karma. And who knows, while doing the prayaschit karma, we may also inadvertently do more bad actions because our thoughts count too, right? So if we have a bad thought, that counts also as pop. So on one hand, we're working hard to erase the effect of one single sin. And during the same amount of time, we may have performed 10 or 20 more. 
So it's a very uh, slow, arduous process to uh, undergo the elimination of past sins through this method. But what does Bhagavatam say about Bhakti's ability to eliminate sins? Kechit kevalaya bhaktya vasudeva parayana agham dhunbanti kartsnyena nihara Vedavyasji writes that just like on a morning, sometimes even on a warm morning, there might be a mist covering the sky so you can't see the sun. But once the sun gets up high enough, it just burns away all those mist droplets and all the droplets of dew everywhere. Just the power of the sun dries everything out in a very short time. Similarly, by practicing bhakti, one's past sins are burnt away, eliminated, just like those little, dro- so many droplets of water, mist in the air, droplets of dew on the ground, like that, we have uncountable past sins, and bhakti has the ability to wash them all away. Dharma satyadayopeto vidyava tapasanvita madbhakti this is also a verse from the Bhagavatam where Sri Krishna himself is talking to Uddhav and he says that my bhakti is the most powerful cleaning agent that you can have for the mind. And keep in mind that bhakti means attachment of the mind to Krishna. What kind of attachment? The attachment you feel when you love someone so much that when you remember them, you feel a thrill in your heart. And when you are separated from them, you feel a longing that brings tears. That kind of attachment to God purifies the heart. So he says, dharma is a very great thing. Dharma satya dayopetaha. Dharma good actions, with satya, means being truthful, with daya, being compassionate and merciful to others. So that's the best kind of dharma. And vidya, tapasanvita, knowledge combined with austerity is also a very great thing. But that karma, dharma, and that gyan, nasamyak prapunatihi. It doesn't have the ability to fully clean your heart. See, where are the sins? In here. So when we talk of cleaning sins, we talk of cleaning the heart. It means the same thing. If you want to eliminate your past sins, it means you have to clean your heart. And here, Sri Krishna himself is saying that karma, dharma, it's a very good thing. And jnana, it's a very good thing. But nasamyak, Samyak means completely. Prapunati. Prapunati means to clean, to wash away. It can't do it. What can? Madbhaktya. Through my bhakti, through bhakti to Shri Krishna, you can completely purify your heart. So even when it comes to the elimination of past sins and the purification of the heart, bhakti is supreme. See, we can understand in general about the supremacy of bhakti. Before we move on specifically and look at jnana, again, let's go to this conversation between Uddhav and Sri Krishna, which is told in the 11th canto of the Bhagavatam. Uddhavji asks a question. Vadanti Krishna Shreyansi Bahuni Brahmavadina such a great question. It was asked 5,000 years ago and it's more applicable than ever nowadays. He says, Shri Krishna, please tell me, 
that there are so many paths described in the scriptures and by saints and by everybody. There, if you add them all up, they're almost uncountable, the different number of spiritual paths and practices. So he says, I have two questions for you. Out of all of those, which one is the best one for a soul of Kaliyug to follow? Because in Kaliyug, people have less ability to study, remember, understand, practice. We're very distracted and we have limited time. So he says, considering that, which of these paths is best? And secondly, why are there so many paths? An excellent question. In fact, if we understand what Sri Krishna answered to this, it really clarifies the whole thing. So he says, first of all, Arjun, Kalena Nashta Pralaye Varniyam Veda Sangita Adau Brahmane Prokta Dharmo Yasyam Madatmaka He goes back to the very beginning, the creation of the Brahmand, and he says, at that time, before the beginning of human civilization, I gave the knowledge of Vedas to Brahma. The Ved existed before, but Kalena Nashta Pralaye, when there was a Pralay, because the existence of souls and God in the world, it goes on for eternity, but in a cyclical fashion. So there's a srishti and then there's a pralay. Srishti means what we're, where we are now. This is the creation phase or manifested phase of the universe. And pralay means the dissolved form of the universe. So because of the pralay, the actual ved was lost from the world, but it wasn't lost because it resides eternally within Krishna. So he says, I gave the ved again to Brahma for him to make known in the world. Then he made it known, and for several generations there were only divine personalities, saints, the original rishis of the earth planet. But eventually ordinary souls populated the earth, and then they were basically of three types. Yatha prakriti sarvesham sravanti. So Sri Krishna says, although I only told one thing in the Vedas, he said, I told dharma, dharmo yasyam madatmaka. Dharma, he says, I told dharma in the Vedas, sanatan dharma. So what is that for? He says, Yasyam Madatmaka. Through that a soul can come to me. That's all I told in the Vedas. Everything I told was only to bring souls to me. So really one thing I told. But all of that material was interpreted by different people. So the ordinary people of the world are of three types. Their minds are either Sattvic or Rajas or Tamas. So they took that knowledge of the Vedas and they misinterpreted it according to their own quality of mind because that knowledge of Ved is divine. It's not sattvic or rajas or tamas. So only a divine mind can correctly interpret the Vedas. And if someone is sattvic or rajas or tamas, then they cannot. So we are all in that category. And our ordinary type of souls like us, we have populated this earth for so long and these Vedas have been available. So we've made our own interpretations of that. Even if someone is a learned Sanskrit scholar, if his mind is not divine, he cannot correctly know what is the real meaning of the Vedas. So, the sattvic-minded people gave a sattvic interpretation. The rajas-minded people gave a rajas interpretation. And the tamas-minded people gave a tamas interpretation. See, just like if I clap my hands in the middle of my speech, 
you'll all interpret it differently. Some of you might think, well, maybe he was trying to get somebody's attention. Someone might think, maybe he forgot what he was going to say and that's his way of remembering. And someone might think, maybe he's got a screw loose. He just does that randomly. So one simple action can be interpreted in so many different ways. Similarly, the true meaning of the Vedas is hidden. It's not apparent just at the face value of the words. For instance, the word Atma in the Ved is sometimes used for God and sometimes used for souls. Because we are Jivatma and he's Paramatma, so that's a short form. You can just say Atma when you're talking of Jivatma, or you can say Atma when you're talking about Paramatma, but it's a big difference because Paramatma is omnipresent and Jivatma is only present in this one small body. So, you may think you know what Atma means, but when you're reading the Ved and the word Atma comes, it, you could misinterpret it even if you're a Sanskrit scholar. Even the word Prana has been used for God. Even the word Akash has been used for God in the Vedas. So you really have to understand the context. And the only way to do that is to learn it from a God-realized saint. So anyway, because of this, because, you know, there's no law stating that uh, even though Ved says, Acharya Van Purusho Hiveda, you Sattvic Rajas and Tamas minded souls do not directly study Ved. Acharya Van. You have to study with the help of a God realized saint. Ved itself says, so, Ved is telling us, but still there's no law that prohibits someone from reading and translating and interpreting the Vedas, and we've been doing that for thousands of years. So there are so many uh, misinterpretations of the Vedas out there. So everybody gives emphasis to the part that appeals to their mind. So although Krishna says, I laid out the knowledge in such a way just to bring people to me, that's it. Yet, dharma meke yashashchanye kamam satyam damam shamam anye vadanti swartham va aishwaryam he says, but out of that, people found all these different things mentioned in the Vedas, and each one, whatever appealed to them, they gave more emphasis to that. Someone said dharma, karma. Someone said vrat. Someone said yam. Someone said niyam. Someone said control your senses. Someone said aishwaryam, just get power. Someone said nam kamao, just become famous, because when you're gone, the only thing left is your name. Someone said kam and bhojanam. Just fulfill your desires. Just eat to your heart's content. That's all this world is good for. Someone else says, no, 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 satyam. Be truthful all the time in every situation. Someone else says, do yagya. Someone else says, do tat. Someone else says, do dan. And all of this is mentioned in the Vedas. But as I explained, these are all preliminary practices to elevate a person's consciousness and at least encourage them to do good actions. And eventually they'll come to the point where they desire God. But if someone thinks that these actions are the be-all and the end-all and just by following these spiritual practices, they're going to get to their ultimate goal of God-realization, Krishna says, no. Adhyantavanta evaisham loka karma vinirmita dukho darkastamonishtha Chudrananda Shuchar Pita. He says, from that regard, all of those other practices are wrong. He says, they all have Adhyanta Vanta Phal. 
ఆది అంత వంత్ ఆది బిగినింగ్ అంత్ ఎండ్ దౌట్కమ్ దల్ ఆఫ్ దోస్ ప్రాక్టీసెస్ ఇట్ గివ్స్ అ టెంపరీ గుడ్ రిజల్ట్ బట్ నథింగ్ పర్మనెంట్ నో గాడ్ రియలైజేషన్ సో కృష్ణస్ ఇస్ ఫ్రమ్ దట్ పర్స్పెక్టివ్ ఆల్ ఆఫ్ దెమ్ ఆర్ రాంగ్ if someone follows those paths thinking that it's going to give them freedom from maya and god realization then they're wrong bhaktya hame kayagrahya shraddhayatma priya satam bhakti punati mannishtha svapakan api sambhavat he says bhakti i am only attainable through bhakti such a clear picture all of the other spiritual practices he does mention them in the ved but they're all preliminary practices and they're all meant to just improve your level of consciousness to the point where you would desire to do bhakti so bhakti is the only way of attaining god in ramayana tulsidas ji says ek vyadhi vash nar marahi ye asadhya bahu vyadhi he says a person can perish from one single physical ailment but human beings are afflicted by untold number of mental ailments it's amazing that they survive at all we have anger and jealousy and hatred and all these things that really bother our mind all the time they're really mental afflictions or diseases and we try to become better we try to become good but without purifying this thing because this machine in here our mind that's what produces the thoughts so if the mind itself is impure what kind of thoughts is it going to produce so tulsidas ji says name dharma aachar tap yoga yagya jap dana bheshaj puni kotin kariya rujan jahi haryan says follow all of those good practices all the good karma that's told in the vedas he says those diseases won't go just by doing that he says there's one ilaj one medicine which is a cure all raghupati bhakti sajivan muri he says bhakti to lord ram cures everything that's it you want to clean this you want to eliminate those mental diseases of anger and desire and jealousy and all of that just do bhakti one time there was a conference going on and in that conference there was a question put forth that all of the mahatmas gathered there were supposed to try to answer that in our scriptures it says by bathing in ganga all of your past sins are washed away and you attain liberation so the question was that people have bathed in ganga some people hundreds and thousands of times yet their sins have not been washed away and they have not been liberated so what how do we resolve this apparent contradiction either the importance of ganga ji has been exaggerated or something is not being done right so all of those mahatmas gathered could not answer the question but there was another great saint nearby who is not attending that conference so someone knew I, i'll go and ask him so he went and said uh, guruji no one was able to answer this question actually a few of them came from the conference they just quietly came and said we know that this sant can probably answer so they came and put the question forth to him and he said i can answer your question just think of one thing if i told you to take a bottle that has a an airtight cork that you could seal it with and you take that bottle 
take the cork out and it's empty. You go in a, some gutter where there's dirty gutter water running and you fill that and put the cork in tight and seal it up. And then go and submerge that or maybe just bring some Ganga Jal here. Get a, like a big container of Ganga Jal and put your container of gutter water, submerge it in there and keep it submerged for a day, a week, a month. So let's say after a month you pull that bottle out of the Ganga Jal or even if you went to the actual river and submerged it there, pull it out after a month, uncork it. Would you do Achaman of that? Would you actually take that and drink it as holy water? The water that was sealed tight in the bottle? They all said, no, of course not. Why not? Well, it never became Ganga Jal. If such dirty water were just mixed in with the Ganges, then it becomes part of Gangaji. So it becomes holy water. But it never mixed. It, it was sealed up tight in its bottle. So it never became Ganga Jal. So that saint said, these things you want to clean out of yourself, your past sins, your anger, your desires, all of those things, do you know where they are? They're kept sealed tight in here, in your mind, in your antahakaran. So simply by physically bathing in Ganga, how will your mind be cleaned? If you go in physically, you may be looking over there, oh, who else is watching me bathe? Who else is taking a bath? Oh, someone's over there. The mind is going everywhere. Mind itself is not taking a bath in Ganga. The mind should be thinking, oh, this is a holy, divine river. This river washes over the lotus feet of Sri Krishna on her way down to the earth planet. This is the holy river of Ganga. So with such faith, if we bathe in Ganga, then the mind could be purified, otherwise not. So, it means that physical good karma cannot purify the heart unless the heart is surrendered to God, and that surrender is bhakti. So it, what all of this means is that bhakti itself has the power to purify our heart and take us to God-realization. Karma alone does not. But if we add bhakti to karma, it becomes karma-yoga, that can take us to God. Now let's go on to the second path, jnana. The path of knowledge has had a lot written about it in our scriptures, told by saints, people have a very high regard for Gyan. But you would be amazed to know that in our scriptures, although there is praise for the path of knowledge, there is also criticism. So let me show you both. See, in Ved, there are mantras like Tameva viditvati mrityumeti nanya pantha vidyate yanaya Shvetashvatarupanishad. The mantra that this whole series is based on, which I, this series I started last year. It says, only by knowing God can you cross over Maya. So, knowledge is obviously important. Yet, on the other hand, Ishavasyopanishad says, Tato bhuya ivate tamo ya uvidyaya The one who is a jnani, he goes down, he falls down into darkness. A total contradiction, an apparent contradiction. Take Gita. Gita says, There is nothing more purifying than jnana, than knowledge. And Sri Krishna says, the jnani is particularly dear to me. He is as dear to me as my own soul. Just like in the Ramayana. Jnani bisheshaha Rama piyara. Jnani is particularly dear to Rama. Jnani Prabhuhi Vishesha Piyara So Jnana must be a very great thing. 
In Ramayana it says that Jnana is great. In Gita it says that Jnana is great. Yet in the same Gita it says as well, Manushyanam sahasreshu kaschidyatati siddhaya yatatam api siddhanam kaschin maam veti tatvataha Shri Krishna says, one in thousands of people actually know me as I am after thousands of lifetimes. So, jnana, knowledge, must be a very great thing. Yet, if we look to Ramayan, we also find an opposite statement. In the Ramayan, Ram himself says, Bhagati hina viranchikina hoi Sab mohi samapriya soi If someone doesn't have bhakti, then they are not particularly dear to me. After saying, Jnani prabhuhi vishesha piyara, the jnani is particularly dear to God. Now Ramayana is saying, no, 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 if he doesn't have bhakti, he's not dear to God at all. Then look at the next step Tulsidas ji takes. Tejar kaam dhenu griha tyagi khojat aaku phirahi payalagi He says, for a jnani who wants to find God or get liberation from maya simply by following the path of jnana, he says that person is jara. Jara means, really bluntly put, it means dumb. That's what jara means, someone who is very simple, very slow-minded. So he's saying for a jnani that he's jara. How jara? He says, imagine someone who has kamadhenu, the celestial wish-yielding cow, tied up at their own house and leaving the milk of kamadhenu, that person goes out wandering in the desert looking for the poisonous milk of the milkweed plant. How smart would you think that person is? That's, Tulsidas ji is saying, that's the level of the jnani who wants to attain liberation by following the path of jnana, but he doesn't stop there. He goes one step further. He says, Te shat maha sindhu bina tarani Pari par chahahi jada karani just like in an argument, you know, things heat up and the language gets more and more uh, sharp. Now Tulsidas went to the next level. He says he's a shut. Means he's, he's not only slow-minded, but he's wicked. Who? The jnani. The jnani who wants to attain liberation by following the path of jnana. He compares him to someone who wants to cross an unlimited ocean by just swimming on the strength of his own two arms. He has no boat. Leaving the help of a boat, he just decides to try to swim across. He says, I'm comparing that fool to the level of a jnani. So, we see that on one hand our scriptures say, Rite jnanamuktihi. You can't get liberation without jnana. Jnana devahi kaivalyam. The only way to get liberation is through jnana. And on the other hand, they're denouncing the path of jnana and a jnani. So there has to be some kind of secret behind this. And we can understand it by understanding that jnana, all kinds of jnana, are divided into two main categories. We call Shabdik Gyan and Anubhavatmak Gyan. Theoretical knowledge, theory, that's Shabdik Gyan, like bookish knowledge, and experience, the knowledge you get through experience, Anubhavatmak Gyan. These are the only two types of knowledge. Either you have the theory or you have the actual experience. 
such as, let's say, you bought a cookbook and you read the cookbook and you memorized all the recipes and all the techniques, but you've never cooked anything. You've never actually entered the kitchen and cooked anything. So you have the theory, like if I read a book on rolling roti, and I know all the techniques memorized forwards, backwards, upside down on how to roll the best roti. But every one of you sitting here who's ever rolled a roti, you know that I have no chance of rolling a roti just from reading a book. (laughs) You would all laugh at me. If I entered the kitchen, if I walk out of here and go and enter the kitchen and say, Sablog Saeed Ho Jao, I'm going to roll the rotis tonight. Oh, have you ever rolled the roti? No, but I read a big thick book on how to roll the roti. You would all laugh at me. Acha Swamiji, aye, let's see this. this. This ought to be a good comedy show. So we know that theory on its own is not of much value. That theory has to be put into practice. Then its true value comes into play. So the real knowledge is experiential knowledge. Now the same thing is true on the spiritual side. On the spiritual side, our Vedas call theoretical knowledge aparavidya and real experiential knowledge paravidya. Para means supreme knowledge. So on the spiritual side, Theoretical knowledge is considered dangerous if it's not put into practice and turned into experiential knowledge. That's because we tend to get a pride of knowing something. I mean, it's, our, it's just our human nature. Let's say there's someone who doesn't know a single verse of the Gita, and then they memorize all 700 shlokas in the Gita. Do you think it's possible for a person to do that and not have a pride that I know all 700 verses of Gita? No, it's our nature. We can't not have pride. So what's in Gita? For instance, Sri Krishna says, Sarvadharman parityajya mamekam sharanam vraja. Mamekam sharanam vraja. Sri Krishna is saying to Arjun, come and take shelter in me. Surrender to me. So, do you think when he told that knowledge to Arjun, that he meant for that knowledge, for that shlok, to be memorized and recited? No. <laughs> what are we doing when we do that? We're saying, Mame kam sharanam vraja, Mame kam sharanam vraja. What are we saying? We're saying, come and surrender to me. That's what we're actually saying. What we should be doing is, trying to surrender to Krishna. So, see, that's the practice. That's the experience. So, if someone memorizes the whole Gita, then we're automatically going to have a pride of that unless we put it into practice. And put it, putting it into practice means practice bhakti. And by practicing bhakti, you start to experience God. You start to experience what's described in the theory and what that true experience leads to is humbleness. Isn't it amazing? True humbleness comes through the actual real spiritual experience of starting to come closer to God because it purifies the heart and it starts to reduce those mayic qualities of the mind and and the divine qualities start to imbue the mind because the mind is starting to get imbued with God's grace. So true humbleness comes by surrendering to God. So if we're gaining theoretical knowledge but not improving our surrender to God, then we're improving our pride in our knowledge. And that is, in fact, taking us farther from God. It's having the exact opposite effect. We're becoming jnanabhimanis. We're proud of our jnan. Whereas, actually, before memorizing the entire Gita, we might have had more humbleness. 
to where, you know, someone who only knows maybe one shlok, Vameva Mata, Chapitat, Vameva, and they come to the mandir and they recite that, but at least they may have feelings of humbleness before God, that God, I, I, I don't know anything. I'm just dependent on your grace. I've come to you. Please grace me. That feeling would more, be more likely to be there than someone who knows, I know. I know Gita, I know Vedas. So if we just have the knowledge and we don't turn that into surrender to God, then it becomes an obstacle on the path. So you can understand that now those verses in Ved that are denouncing the jnani, they're denouncing that theoretical jnani who just has the knowledge of the scriptures in theory but never puts it into practice by actually becoming surrendered to God because that type of jnana is very dangerous. You see, jnana has to be put into practice. There's a story of during Shankaracharya's time there was a great scholar named Mandan Mishra. So Mandan Mishra was famous for being a great scholar and all the other scholars, including Shankaracharya, used to come to his home and they would have debates on scriptural philosophy. Now outside Mandan Mishra's home, hanging just by the door, were two cages with parrots in it. And the two parrots were always talking to each other back and forth. And of course, parrots repeat what they hear. So it's said that those parrots of Mandan Mishra, they also used to do Shastrat. They used to have scriptural debates. One would say, this world is fake. It's totally fake. And the other parrot would say, no, 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 this world is real. Another one would say, prove it. Another one, the other one would answer, I'm going to give you scriptural evidences right now. They're going back and forth. They have no idea what they're saying. It's like the parrot that uh, was taught by his, uh, by his human owner because he wanted his parrot not to get caught in, ever get caught in a hunter's net. So he taught the parrot that, now bird, don't ever go and sit on the rope because that rope is part of the hunter's net. So the parrot would always say, don't sit on the rope, don't sit on the rope. He'd repeat that to himself all the time. But one day he got out of the cage and he flew around in the jungle and he went and sat on the rope and he's sitting there on the hunter's uh, net, sitting on that rope, saying to himself, don't sit on the rope, which is part of the hunter's net. And of course he got caught by the hunter. So this is like... If we just have spiritual knowledge and never put it into practice, hamara yehi hal hai. Like having, uh, you see, here's an example of how spiritual knowledge is meant to be put into practice. There was a great saint long ago, a great king, named Raja Bhoj. So in Raja Bhoja's kingdom, there was a very poor Brahman who wanted to get his daughter married and he had no funds, he had no resources to make that happen. So he thought, I'm so poor and Raja Bhoja has so much, so I'll, using my great intelligence, I'll find a way to enter his castle, his palace, and I'll steal what I need for this wedding. So this... Uh, Pandit was very learned in all the scriptures and he was very intelligent and he found a way somehow to get past the gate and past the guards and into that palace at night. And since it was night, the whole palace was dark and quiet and everyone was asleep. And of course there were some guards, but he avoided those. Now he started trying to steal so he went and he saw a uh, big golden candle holder. And he went and he put his hand on that. And as he picked it up, he remembered in what Ved it's told that if you steal gold, you get this kind of punishment in Narak. So he put it down. He said, I won't steal gold, I'll steal silver. 
when he found something silver and as he was picking it up then he remembered oh in this Ved it's told that for stealing silver you get this kind of punishment in this Narak so he thought okay I'll steal diamonds and the same thing kept happening the whole night every time he tried to steal something he would remember his theoretical knowledge that he has from studying Vedas and then he would apply that knowledge and say no I shouldn't do this so the whole night went by in this way and he was actually he was even in the king's bedroom where the king was uh, sleeping and he was trying to steal things there and unsuccessful because his knowledge would not allow him to and he actually found himself caught there in the king's bedroom when the king's servants came to wake him up in the morning so he got caught by surprise and he had to quickly hide under the king's bed so it was a very grand thing because this Raja Bhoj was a great king so the servants came in and they were playing trumpets and there were horses and elephants sounding off in the courtyard and they were singing songs and waking him up in such a grand royal way so the king opened his eyes and he felt so great with all of his material power and luxury and opulence that he just sang a Sanskrit shlok Cheto Harayuvataya Surido Nukula Sadbandhava Pranayagar Bhagirascha Bhritya Valganti Danti Nivahas Taralas Turanga He only sang three of the four lines of a shlok and he stopped so he was just exclaiming that life is so good for me <laughs> look at this look at my life I have people coming to wake me up like this in the morning I have so much wealth and power everybody loves me I have a good family all my subjects are favorably disposed towards me my servants love me look at my life now the pundit hiding under the bed couldn't contain himself because for one he left the shlok unfinished there was one another quarter left to finish and for another the, he wanted to give some knowledge to the king so he finished the shlok from underneath the bed <laughs> which meant but when you close your eyes for the last time never to open them again you don't take any of this with you you go and all of this stays and the king was you know startled that where is this voice coming from I've heard of Akashvani is this Patalvani and the guards quickly pulled him out and there was the pundit standing before the king so the pundit had to tell the king the whole story that you know why had he entered the palace and then he told him how he had spent the whole night trying to steal but then he wasn't able to because his knowledge of Vedas would come back to him so the king was so impressed both by the shlok that he had sung and the knowledge he had given him through that and by the fact that this pundit was actually applying his theoretical knowledge and preventing himself from doing pop so he just gave the pundit whatever he needed and more for what he needed to accomplish so this is an example of actually applying the knowledge most of the time whatever theoretical spiritual knowledge we have it remains like a, like a holstered weapon like it's there but we never use it like let's say you have some pepper spray or mace and you're walking home one night uh, through some neighborhood and someone comes to uh, steal your wallet and your money so during that time you know he might be he might hit you he might abuse you he might take your things and then once he's gone then you remember oh yeah I had that pepper spray that's what spiritual knowledge is like for us most of the time we just we have this theoretical knowledge we never actually put it into practice like 
the shopkeeper's son who was scolded by his father that uh, son why don't you ever go to the mandir and listen when those baba ji's and those mahatmas come and they talk about good things you you should also go i go all the time he said okay father tonight i'll go so he went and he listened and that night the baba ji was telling about harish chandra and being truthful so then the next day in the shop he was practicing truthfulness so he was telling all the customers this is the cost value of this and we've marked it up this much so i'm asking you for this much and this is my profit margin so once the customer had left the you know his father came jhapad lagaya bevakuf kya kar raha hai father I'm just applying what I learned in the katha last night it was about Harish Chandra and about being truthful he says katha sunne ki akal bhi chahiye na there is a method of listening to that spiritual knowledge you're you're so silly you go to one katha and it had such a big effect on you i've been listening to these katha for years it's had no such effect on me because i know how to listen and son you listen i'm going to tell you the secret when the, when they're talking it's like you hold out your shawl like this and all the good words come in and you take everything they say and you keep it here with you that's how you're supposed to listen then when the katha is over and it's time to get up then so it's good you listen to it but just leave it there don't take it home with you and so this is the level of theory if it isn't put into practice so now you understand that our scriptures have they have denounced such theoretical learning if it's only there as a uh, as a theory and it's never put into practice and if we put that knowledge into practice spiritually speaking and here we have to talk about the path of gyan it's actually divided into two more categories so experiential knowledge is divided into two categories and again the scriptures actually denounce one category of experiential knowledge and praise the second category of experiential knowledge but what those two categories of experiential knowledge are and why one is praised and the other one is criticized i will tell you tomorrow